Good morning. I hope you're having a wonderful day. We're so thankful that you've chosen to worship with us. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. And we, we are grateful that you're here. And maybe you're visiting and you're new. Um, hopefully, you've been encouraged. Hopefully, you've met someone. Hopefully, you've been able to worship. And that's our hope. We want to connect you as a family. We want to lead and point you to Christ so that you could passionately pursue Him. Um, So we're grateful for today. We've had a a busy weekend. Our students had an all-nighter. That's no excuse, students, this morning. Wide awake, how we feeling? Not good. Yeah. Where are the adults that went on the all-nighter? Yeah, that's tough. No excuses. Let's pray as we open up God's Word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what we are able to celebrate in communion. That you came to help us to fix our problem through sending your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, though this is something that we do with communion every single month, I pray that Uh, this would be meaningful to us. As we reflect and remember and take the elements, God, that we would be renewed in our joy and gratitude for who you are. And so, God, now as we continue to focus on the ways that you have provided for us, God, we ask that by your Spirit, you would help us. We want to know you better. We want to know you deeper. We want to be encouraged in our faith as we walk with you this week. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds that we would reflect and think deeper with you. May nothing distract us or keep us from what you have for us today. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word and for this opportunity, and it's only because of your Son, Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen. So we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and this week we're going to be in in John 3, 9 through 21. We'll continue the Gospel of John um, next week, but then for the month of December, we'll take a break for Advent, and then we'll start the new year. We're talking about the new year. We'll start with a couple of topical series on apologetics um, and some different things. And then we'll, we'll, don't worry, we'll get back to John um, after the new year starts. We're going to be in John 3. And really, I stopped last week in verse 8. This week, we're continuing this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus on the new birth. And we've been talking about it uh, since we started Jesus' public ministry um, about what Jesus has come to do. And he came first as a refiner and he walks into the temple and he starts flipping tables because the way that they're worshiping, the place that they're worshiping is not what he wants. And so he, he foreshadows what he's come to do as a person and his mission by flipping these tables And communicating to these people that this is not how it was meant to be. But like we've said every week, or I've said every week, 
that Jesus didn't just come to change how they were worshiping, that Jesus came to change people's lives, that he didn't come as an educator to teach people into the kingdom, that he didn't just come as a miracle worker to amaze people into the kingdom, but that Jesus came to change people's lives. And this is what we see with Nicodemus. This is the example that he is giving us. Like, yes, I've come to change how you worship. And it's really important, the where and the what you're doing. It's, it's really important. But my main mission is coming to change the lives of people. And we talked about last, last week why this is important with being born again, that we were dead. Dead because of our sin. And that Christ has come to make us alive, to give us new birth new life, a new heart, a new way of thinking and feeling. And this is what Christ has come to do. I was reading uh, Chuck Colson's book this week called Born Again. Really fascinating story about Chuck as it talks about his life as he was the top advisor on the special counsel with President Nixon and how he grew up in a religious home but wasn't really following Christ. And as the whole Watergate scandal began to unravel, Chuck, in this book, talks about how this happens and with what this did to him. It's a really interesting read. And it talks about the night before he was implicated in the scandal. And he knew what was coming. He knew that he was part of the cover-up. And he knew that his name was starting to float around. And it talks about how he was in despair. Watching the president go through what he was going through, realizing what was about to come his way and for all that he's worked for to get to this point. And it talks about how in his despair, he called up one of his friends named Tom. Because he'd heard about Tom and and what God had done in Tom's life, and he was desperate. And so he goes over to Tom's house the night before his implication comes public. And he's having dinner with Tom, and he asked Tom about what God had done in his life, because he had heard, he had seen something significantly happen in his life because of Christ. And Tom shares with him what Christ has done in his life, this new life that he's been given And he quoted, or he read to him from mere Christianity that night. This is what he read to him. It says, a proud man is always walking through life looking down on other people and other things. As a result, he cannot see something above himself immeasurably superior. For Charles Colson, his issue was pride. And his friend knew it. And he reads this, this, little, this little section from Mere Christianity. And as Charles Colson's sitting there listening, he knows that God is calling him. And, and Tom offers to pray for him that night. To lead him to Christ. To put his faith in Christ. And, and Charles says he was too embarrassed to do it. He was too prideful. He knew he wanted to, but he couldn't do it. And he talks about how he left his friend's house, he got into his car in his driveway, and he broke down. And this is what he wrote. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively, but didn't let on my own need. 
When he offered to pray, I thanked him, but said, no, I, I'd see him sometime after I read the whole book. But when I got into the car that night, I couldn't drive out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy. And I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I don't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and that night he came into my life. This is what Jesus has come to do. Take people who are aware of their need, who are in despair and who are struggling with their sin and their life, and he's there to give them new life. And Charles Colson is a great example of this new life. He goes to prison for seven months. But yet after this prison term, he starts the biggest prison ministry in the United States. And he dedicates his life from that moment on to caring and to serving those who are in prison. This is what Christ has come to do. To change people's lives. And and last week, as we talked about this, this new life or this new birth, we talked about the circumstances that are around that describe when this event happens. Because this is how the conversation goes with Nicodemus. And so last week, as we talked about the circumstances, we talked about the Holy Spirit's work in this new birth, in this new life that is given to us at salvation. And it's, it's challenging to kind of understand completely. And we talked about how the Holy Spirit, the circumstances, the Holy Spirit's working in a way that we don't understand. That causes us to put our faith in Christ because we're dead. And it's mysterious like the wind. We don't control it. We don't understand it. We can't predict it. But the Holy Spirit works in dead people's hearts so that they can understand and receive the gospel. And it's mysterious. It's why when I was at camp, when I was in high school, and I came to Christ, I heard the message, and I responded to the message, because I had never heard it clearly presented like that, and the Spirit was working in my life, but my best friend sitting next to me heard the same message, responded in the same way, and he couldn't be further from Christ in this very moment. This is the mysterious working of the Spirit, That he moves where he wishes. He touches different people at different times. And we talked more about the circumstances of this new birth last week. That we talked about how this is something that was complete. And that the the prophecy in Ezekiel about water and giving this new heart is a picture of what Christ does in our hearts. He removes our dead, stony heart and he gives us a new heart, a new life, a new way of thinking. And I shared about my, my failures with poison ivy. How I thought that if I could just trim or kind of take some of the branches out, that that would solve the problem. But it didn't solve the problem. That I had to rip out the roots. Thank you for all the feedback I've gotten this week about caring for poison ivy. I've, someone told me that that actually pulling out, pulling out the roots won't do it either, that you have to spray them. Thank you for that encouraging note to know that it will be coming back. Okay, great. Jesus has come to give us a new heart. 
not to cause us to be a little bit more religious, not to help us in our problems, even though he does those things. His primary mission is to change our lives completely. And so as we think about these things, as we understand the circumstances, we, we need to know that this isn't how it happens. Like it's helpful to know that the Spirit is working. It's helpful to know what is it, what's going to happen, that we're going to get this new heart, but we haven't answered the question of how. We understand the circumstances. The circumstances of me getting married to Ashley were that we met in college. I remember meeting Ashley after chapel. It was an awkward conversation. Awkward conversation. We, we ended up going on an awkward date. We went to TGI Fridays. We went to a talent show. We played a board game with some other people. But that was the first date. That was the circumstance that allowed us, caused us to continue in our relationship. I ended up meeting her family. They were down pretty quickly. Just a couple weekends after we met, we continued to go on dates. She met my family. That's not how we got married, though. The circumstances around our marriage was we met, we went on dates, we met each other's families, we fell in love. How did we get married, though? We walked down the aisle and on July 22nd, a pastor looked at us and determined because of the laws of Pennsylvania, he said, you are now husband and wife. That's the how. We understand the circumstances. Now the question is, how does it happen? This is the question that Nicodemus asks in verse 9. So we'll read our passage starting in verse 9 going through verse 21. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we've had these five questions that we've been talking about. I want to focus this week on those last 
two questions. Can we put those on the screen? How does this happen? This was his question in verse 9. Like, thanks for telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now tell me how. Because here's Nicodemus. He's saying, like, I want to do this. Like, I'm ready to accomplish this. I am a Pharisee. I am a Sadducee. I accomplish religious tasks. Tell me what to do so that I can check the box and do it. And Jesus doesn't respond to his question very favorably. Because he knows what Nicodemus is thinking. He wants to just accomplish it, to check the box. And what Jesus responds to him is saying, you can't, this is not about box checking. This isn't just about doing something. If you don't believe, if it's not in your heart, you can't do it. And so he says to him, you should understand these things, Nicodemus. You've read the Old Testament. You've memorized large portions of the Old Testament. You know Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. You want to do, but you aren't believing, and it's going to hold you back. But Jesus, in his grace and in his ministry to people, realizes that Nicodemus isn't quite connecting the dots. That it's not something you do, but it's something you believe, and that's where you start. He still, even in Nicodemus's ignorance, says, let me carefully lay it out for you. And so that's what he does. He gives Nicodemus an illustration, an explanation, and a reason. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus answering Nicodemus about how does this happen? How can I have this new life and this new heart? Jesus said, let me clearly tell you how. He gives him an illustration. I mean, Jesus knows this is how people learn to understand things. It's not just preaching a message. Let me, let me share with you an Old Testament story that's going to cause you to think. It's going to cause you to wonder, and you're going to remember this story that I'm connecting to your new birth in this moment. And so Jesus tells him the story of Numbers 21 with Moses. I really enjoyed this week studying Numbers 21. What a crazy, scary story. Look at Well, I'll put it on the screen. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Jesus is saying, let me compare it to a story you're familiar with. Let me tell you how you can be born again, and I'm going to connect it to a story that you know in Numbers 21. So we'll read the story, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they sat out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. 
And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I mean, this is a frightening story for me. I really do not like snakes. Like, hate snakes. Another embarrassing story I guess I'll share I was that same little creek that I'm trying to get cleared out while well, it was full of branches and, and leaves, and I'm just taking everything out of this little creek. And there was all this stuff, and I'm pulling it out, and I'm throwing it onto the bank, and then there was a hole. This really is foolish for me to think this, to share this. There was a hole in the ground, a little black hole in the ground. And I wanted to unclog this hole. I didn't have any gloves on. I don't know why I did this, but I stuck my hand in the hole. And I'm like, there's stuff down here. And I pulled out of the hole whatever was in my hand. And I am holding in my hand a snake. <laughs> and my kids are watching me. And I screamed. <laughs> I'm like, I just touched a snake. Like, this is awful. But this is a story in number 21 of judgment. It's a story of sin. The Israelites are complaining. They're doubting. They're questioning. They're disobeying God. And so God, in his justice, he punishes. He brings judgment. But he doesn't leave them in the judgment. He provides a way for them to be healed from these bites. He provides the bronze snake. He gives them something that if they look at the bronze snake, they will be healed. I mean, the the symbolism compared in this story in Numbers 21, compared to what Christ has done for us, it's striking that these snakes are symbols of the punishment for sin. That the punishment for sin, the snakes, that one snake was put on a wooden pole that if they were to just look at it, they would be healed. That Christ came and he became our punishment for our sin. That Christ came and lived with us. He represented us. That he became our punishment on the cross. That God made him to be our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That he became our curse for the law. Galatians 3 That Jesus took the punishment of our sin not on a wooden pole. But that he took it on the cross. And that this didn't just happen instantaneously. It wasn't that that Jesus was put on the cross and that everyone was forgiven and given new life in that moment. No, what happened in Numbers 21 for the people to be healed? What did they have to do? They had to look at the bronze snake on the pole. But what's so amazing to me is that there were no stipulations. There were no stipulations about who could look at the pole and the bronze snake and be healed. It didn't matter how much you had been, you had been complaining. It did not matter how angry you were 
with God and what Moses was doing. If you looked at the bronze snake, you would necessarily be healed. It's also interesting to think about how many people refused to look at the bronze snake. Now, the text doesn't tell us who did and didn't look at the, at the bronze snake, but I wonder if anyone in their anger and in their sin, even though they know they have been bitten and that they are dying, in their anger, they still refused to look at the bronze serpent. But it was simple. And for us, it's incredible that anyone can look at the cross, fix their eyes on the cross, that it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, that in a moment, anyone can fix their eyes on Jesus who hung on the cross for forgiveness for them, and you can be forgiven. How? Look at verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying, just like the Israelites looked to the bronze snake in faith, believing that God would heal them by looking at it, he's saying, we too can look at Jesus on the cross, the punishment for our sin, and believe in him and be completely forgiven. That it doesn't matter what is going on in your life. It doesn't matter how angry you are. It doesn't matter how, how much you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you're addicted to. It doesn't matter how selfish you are. It doesn't matter how much judgment you bring. God loves us. That's what it says. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look at verse 16. So he doesn't just give us an illustration. Okay, I think the illustration's really helpful because it's a little odd and, and it causes them to realize how God has worked in the past and how he's working in the present. But then he says, let me give you a clear explanation. Maybe you don't get the illustration. Let me say exactly what I just said in a very clear way with verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved. Okay, the for is connecting to the thought that was just spoken in 315. Okay, so he's saying the motivation for what I'm about to tell you about God, the, the reason behind it is verse 15. So the Israelites, in their sin, in their complaining, in their disobedience, in all the wrong things that they've done, that we've done, for God so loved. That God is motivated to love us, even in our sin. Even in the things that we have done to deserve the judgment. God's judgment, God loves you. Not just God loves you. God so loves you, completely loves you. As I say to Jack every night, he loves you to the moon and back. As he says back to me every night, I love you, daddy, to Texas and back. I'm like, well, okay. 
I mean, the moon is a little bit further, but... (laughs) God so loves you, even though you have messed this up. What does it say next? For God so loves the world. Now, for Nicodemus, this would have been shocking because for a Jewish leader, his thoughts for God's love was his little Jewish community. The thought that God would love outside of Judaism would have been shocking to him. But God clearly tells him through Jesus Christ the the extent of his love. It's not planet earth. It's every single person, past, present, future. Every tribe, every nation, every skin color, every socioeconomic status, every single person in the past, today, and tomorrow, God so loves them. You and I. For God so loved the world that what does he do? He gives his one and only son. What is love? What is love? Like we watch TV and we get a warped view of love. That it's something we say or something we feel or something that we muster up and we, we, we buy things and do these certain things for people that we care about. And then quickly it leaves. This is the definition of love. Love gives. Love does something. It's not a feeling. It's action. It's moving towards something to solve the problem. If I had to summarize this first phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it would be grace. That for Even in our sin and the way that we've messed things up, God still gives us everything we need to be made right with him. And it is the cost of his son. That's grace. That even though we deserve the punishment, like the Israelites did in Numbers 21, God still gives us grace. I've been thinking about this idea that God could have just given us judgment and and his justice would be punishment for the things that we've done in God's face. But instead, he has decided he's going to love us and fix our problem. And I've thought about parenting. You know, parenting is not an easy thing. Okay, we've got three little munchkins. And I remember thinking with Ashley when Caroline was our only one, when she was younger, thinking, we need to teach Caroline right, and we need to teach Caroline wrong. And we need to teach her that when she does the wrong thing, that there are consequences to that. But we don't want to be too hard on her, because she's little. We don't want her to be scared of us if we punish her, or put her in time out, or whatever we would do. But we don't want her to be to just rule the house and do whatever she wants to do, and we never punish her. So, so we don't want her to grow up to be entitled and, and to think that everyone bows down to her and she can do whatever she wants to. So we're balancing these two things as parents. How do we know when to punish? How do we know when to be gracious? And I remember one afternoon, Caroline was downstairs having quiet time. Okay, And we said to Caroline, 
you can have quiet time. We're not going to make you take a nap today. Your parents need naps, though, so we're going to stay up here. Here's the rule. You can play. You will clean up anything you take out. That's always a fun one, isn't it? They always clean up after themselves, always. Um, You have to clean up after yourself. Um, You can't climb mommy's desk and get into her craft supplies. You can't climb daddy's tool bench and mess with his tools. Clean up whatever whatever mess you've made. Those are the rules. So we're going to go upstairs. We're going to take a nap. See how it goes. A couple, well, probably 10 or 15 minutes later, we heard the footsteps coming up the stairs. Slow footsteps. She opens up the door, and I quickly realize that we have a very serious problem. She had been coloring downstairs. And as she was coloring this picture for Ashley and I, she thought to herself, it's missing something. It's not doesn't quite have the sparkle that I want this picture to have. And she thought, you know what I just remembered? Mom just bought a new container, a very big container of glitter in her, in her, craft, in her craft kit. And so she and her little toddler self climbed up Mommy's desk, opened up the cabinet got out the container of glitter. She got back down to her little desk and she thought, I'm just going to put a little glitter on this picture with a little bit of glue. And and you know what probably would happen. Not just a little bit of glitter came out, but this whole large, large container (laughs) turned upside down and glitter was everywhere. So she's coming up the stairs, and the glitter is coming with her. <laughs> and she says, Dad, Mom, I, I messed up. There's, there's glitter everywhere. So now just pause for a moment, okay? I had given Caroline the rules, okay? I had told her what was right and what was wrong and that there would be consequences, How would I respond in this moment when I see that my daughter has gotten glitter, not just on her and on our table, but everywhere in the basement? Okay, and this is emotional for me because I I do. I think about this moment for Caroline, and I think about this moment for me as a parent and how much you realize about God's love for you, how much I've realized about God's love for me as I've reflected on this one situation. I didn't tell Caroline, go clean up the mess yourself. You're punished. I didn't tell Caroline, go get the vacuum. I didn't tell Caroline, you're in big trouble. You're going to time out. When I saw the situation, my heart loved Caroline. And I got downstairs with Caroline. And I got down in the glitter and I had, we had glitter everywhere, but I got the vacuum out. And we cleaned up the glitter and the mess that she made. Not because I had to, I had told her the rules, but because I loved Caroline. I realized she made a mess so big that she couldn't clean it up. And that I was going to step in and say, I love you, and so I'm going to fix this problem. Now, 
even though we vacuumed and scrubbed, I remember selling that house, there was still glitter, okay? (laughs) When God steps into our lives, even though he did not have to, and he pours his love in our messes that we've made, the difference between what God does and what we did was he completely takes care of it. I mean, completely forgives us in every possible way that there is not any indication of our past to God. This is the love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And so I want to close with this. This is the most important decision you can make in your entire life. This is what the new birth is. The new birth is saying, I believe that. I believe that. That you came to fix the mess that I made. That I believe in who you are and what you've done. And here I am sitting in the mess that I've made. The sin that I understand that I've done And I'm calling out to you saying, God, I need your help. We're not going to finish the last question this week, but I just want to, maybe we'll do that in a couple of weeks, but I want to close with this. If you're sitting here thinking, I don't know, I don't know that I have this new life that Matt is talking about. I want to encourage you today to make sure that you have that relationship with Christ. And here's what we'll do. We're going to sing two songs to close. And all it is, is belief. That's the answer. How do I become born again? The answer is believe. Believe that you're in a mess because of the situation you've made. Believe that Jesus came to fix the mess that you made. And all it is, is you tell God those things. You pray and say, I realize this. I need your help. God, come help me. Because of your son, because of his death, and because of his resurrection, come and rescue me from this mess. So we're going to sing two two songs. And if you're sitting there thinking, I know a lot about Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. And you're thinking, I have come to church for a long time, but I'm not sure that I have been given new life in Christ, I want to encourage you to pray and tell God those things that you've made a mess and that you need help, that he came to fix it, and ask him to do those things. So let's pray as the band comes up and we close with a couple of songs. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us in our mess, that you so loved us even in our mess up, that you sent your one and only son, the son that we've talked about for the last several weeks, the son that was one with the father, completely God. You sent him to deal with our situation in the only way that you could. And God, if there's someone in here this morning who thinks, I'm not sure that I've done that. I pray, God, that you would work in their life, that by the power of your spirit, that you would cause this person, help this person to come to you and 
just talk to you about their situation, that they would come to you, that they would proclaim their belief for your son, Jesus Christ, and how he has come to fix their problem by dying on the cross. So God, I pray that you would work in that way as we sing these last two songs. It's in your name we pray. Amen.